Welcome back to the Pregnish Podcast, where we show what infertility looks like and meet people who go the distance to create their families. Today's episode is presented by Generation Next Fertility in New York City, whose mission is to provide individualized patient-centric quality care and innovative technologies to help patients become parents. For more or to book a consult, visit generationnextfertility.com. Those seeing my next guest, CNN entertainment reporter Chloe Mellis, on the red carpet or out on the town with her two sons may not realize all the twists and turns she had on her journey to family. Learning that she had a low ovarian reserve at just 29 years old and that her husband had male factor infertility was a defining moment in their lives, and one that Chloe describes as so trying that, quote, I cried enough tears that I could fill a well. There was no break. There was no positive thing. This is like a downward hill situation here at this point. So now now I'm at rock bottom because the idea of doing IVF to me, I've said it a million times. I'll say it again, a death sentence. I mean, oh my God, I did not want to do IVF. I thought that sounded awful. I was like, are you kidding me? Why me? I was so bitter. I was so resentful. I was hated the world. I hated every pregnant person I saw on the street. I hated all my friends that were pregnant. I was so low. Hated my husband, even though you're like, why? But I don't know why. I just was in such a dark place. This episode is about balancing life and love while struggling with grief, why Chloe has been vocal about her infertility experience, and what she hopes and advocates for when she looks towards the future of assisted reproductive technology, access to treatment, and supporting those who need help, as she did, to build their families. Chloe, I have known you for years now, and it's the first time I really get to interview you, and I'm so thrilled you're in the studio with me here in New York City. Thank you for being here. I'm sorry I was late. There was so much traffic. <laughs> you know, I always say, you know, this is the greatest, most exciting area by Times Square, but it's also a real pain to get to the <laughs> studio, so I do not blame you at all. But, you know, we officially met. I think we were both panelists at Claudia She Summit years ago. Natalie was part of that. And I remember thinking it was great to finally meet you because I don't know if you know, but at the Pregnantish launch party, a bunch of your old co-hosts from VH1 Gossip Table were at my launch party because I was friends with Noah and Rob and, and Delana. Like I was in that world with so many people and you were someone I didn't know. And even Shane, I think, who is the showrunner. Oh, yeah. I knew all of them because I used to do like VH1 shows. I and know. So how funny that fertility brought us together, but I love it. I think it's been such a joy to get to know you through the years and hear your voice and your advocacy. And it's something I so appreciate. Oh, that's really nice of you to say that because I have never seen myself as an advocate and I never really, that's not what I sought out to do. And I always wonder, you know, I wish I could do more, right? And actually my job prevents me from lobbying or, or doing some of those types of things. So all I can really do at this point is share my experiences. But I think you're touching on the fact that that is important too. And I have to remind myself that even just being open with what my husband and I went through is helpful. Because I remember when I was going through our journey, 
I felt like I didn't know anybody that had stories that sounded anything like mine. So I love that you're keeping this conversation going. It's really important, right? I so agree. And I think that... And yes, we go way back. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> Here we true. are. Here we are. Who would have thought? But I also think it's so interesting that when you share, and I know you know this, when you share... You always hear a story back and that shows that none of us are alone. And while it can feel so isolating, that's the greatest proof ever that this is just like a silent epidemic. So you using your voice and your platform, I think sometimes storytelling and media is the greatest way to advocate because we normalize it in a way through that medium that everyday people can see themselves in your story. So Anyway, I would love to start this is kind of counterintuitive. It's the pregnant-ish podcast, but I always start with, <laughs> let's not talk about fertility. Let's talk about you. Who are you outside of this? You know, oh, what wow. we're going to talk about today. Well, mom of two, thank goodness, because I didn't know if that was ever going to happen. I have two cats and a dog. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, but I also lived in Dallas, Texas. And then I went to school in Alabama. So I'm kind of like Southern through and through. I live outside the city in a town called Westchester. Mm -hmm. And so have a yard and all that fun stuff. So I'm not in like a high rise, like living. <laughs> You're not in Times Square where we are right no, now. No, <laughs> I'm not doing the, 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 the city living thing. And I, you know, I've been a journalist for 16 years. Something I always knew that I wanted to do was to be a reporter and a writer. And I have a brother who lives in the city. My dad is Greek. I'm half Greek. I like long walks on the beach. I'm a cancer. No, I, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, you know, and I, I've been working for the last three years on my grandfather who died 20 years ago on his book. So we'll probably get to that at some well, point. Well, let's get to that right now, actually, because <laughs> I've been, you know, we follow each other on social yes. and I've seen you. I get chills when I see you talk about it because I know so nice. how, no, truly, like it's so beautiful to bring the story out that I'm so tired. Just a, oh, <laughs> of course you are. A, a tour is exhausting. I've done them, but yeah. on book tours, but what a great legacy that you are sharing. And, and obviously the Pregnancy Podcast, we were talking before we started recording is about family. Like there's no higher stakes for those of us doing everything we possibly can to try to have a baby than family. So of course your grandfather's story would be so important to you. So tell us about it. Well, my grandfather, Frank Murphy, he wrote a book for the family called Luck of the Draw. And he wrote about his experiences in World War II and being shot down out of his airplane and being a prisoner of war for almost two years. And he wrote it just for our family and he self-published it. And he, you know, I don't know how many copies he had, but let's pretend there were a couple hundred and he would hand them out to people. And if he sold some copies at some different World War II events, all the money went to a local museum. Museum. But when my mom and I learned that he was going to be featured as a character, someone playing him in an upcoming TV show for Apple called Masters of the Air, it's supposed to come out this year. It stars Austin Butler and <laughs> cool. it's about World War II and the Air Force. We said, let's get this book published. And so we found a publisher and here we are. And it came out yesterday. Amazing. I can't believe you're here today. That shows your commitment. By oh, the yeah. Way, too. oh yeah. And so, oh my gosh, it's doing super well on Amazon. Amazing. It's like in the top 30 books in the world. So I don't know what that means exactly, uh, but that's I'm, huge. I'm so excited. That's huge. And it's... It, Tom Hanks gave a beautiful quote 
that's on the front cover. And my mom and I wrote the foreword and it's a really great book and all the money goes to two different veterans organizations. So, you know, I encourage anyone that actually there are parallels to infertility because it's about resilience. It's about carrying on. It's about high stakes. It's about uncertainty in the future. And although you might not be a history buff or a military enthusiast, I think that especially the parts when he's in the prison camp will definitely maybe put things into, definitely maybe, I think that's like a song, (laughs) put things into perspective for all of us who are going through a tough time. So I think maybe you'll leave inspired. I love it. I can't wait to read it. I I actually, I don't know if you know, my dad was born in hiding um, during the Holocaust. Yeah. I didn't know that. um, He had me a bit later, I guess, than back in those days. But, you know, I'm fascinated by World War II. Where were they living? Hungary, Budapest. So I'm half Hungarian and actually just always gravitating to these stories. Well, you'll of, really love you know, this book because although it's not about the Holocaust, it's all about fighting the Nazis and my grandfather being in this German prisoner of war camp, although vastly different than a concentration camp. No, but, but how traumatic. very traumatic experience. Yeah. And just so grateful that these men were fighting, fighting evil, you know, yeah. and had we not won the war life would be very different. Very different. And we may not be sitting across from each other. That always, Definitely not. That always really hits at home for me when we think back to our family stories. So speaking of our family stories, obviously family is so important to both of us. But when did you know you wanted to be a mom? Like when did that always, get? always just from oh, what you can remember? Dolls, Barbies, um, I would ride around in my neighborhood on my bicycle and pretend that I was driving a minivan with my kids in the back. So that was just sort of like a given. I always knew I would have kids. It was just sort of like a no-brainer. It's going to happen. So the idea that it was difficult to get pregnant is crazy for me because in my mind, it's not something that ever crossed my mind. It was just like, okay, I will get married, you know, because I'm very much like a traditionalist, but that doesn't mean that I don't, that doesn't mean that I judge other people for how they live their lives. But for me, I was like, I'm going to get married and then I'm fall in love, get married, and then I'll get pregnant after my honeymoon. Yeah. And then we'll have a ba- couple babies, a girl and a boy, a girl first, of course, you know, mm-hmm. and here I am. And it was this multi-year journey almost ruined my marriage. And I have two boys, oh my <laughs> no gosh. girl. I mean, nothing is what we think when we didn't expect to go through this process to your point. So I remember I used to say, let's have a summer baby to my husband, which is hilarious. Not only did I have a winter baby, I had a winter baby like I just needed a baby in a certain year. I didn't care when this baby came, how this baby came. But when we're, you know, it's kind of ignorance is bliss because we thought it would just happen. And we then obviously saw what we were made of with our resilience to make it happen. So for you, what made it? When did you first step into a clinic or get a consult or learn more about your fertility. Yeah. And also to that, though, I would say that it angers me that I wasn't prepared, that why wasn't that ever talked about in any class in school? Why wasn't I taught while learning about reproduction? Why not that also it doesn't happen for everyone? Or not no, it's, easily. It's extremely true. Because also. they teach you that 
I know. They tell you that if you have sex, you're going to get pregnant. So don't have sex. So they scare you into not having sex, right? And really then you find out, oh my gosh, you can only get pregnant like one day out of the entire month, you know? So it's, you know. Yeah. It's actually the, the system hasn't served us at all in that way. And I think it's a new needs era. to evolve. Well, I always say to our audience at Pregnish, it's a great time to be infertile, which is like, I laugh while I say it, but I really mean it only in that so far as the fact that there's new technology powering it. There's more voices than ever breaking the taboo. And it's just a different era than a decade ago, even. So things are hopefully going to catch up to what we both hope for the future. I hope so. And my first experience was just that we had been married about a year and we decided, well, I sort of decided it was like, it's time. And I just started pretty immediately tracking my period and I was peeing on the ovulation sticks and I couldn't ever figure out if I was ovulating. I didn't do the temperature thing, you know, like where like you lay in bed and you take your temperature every day. I don't have the patience for that. (laughs) Then I bought like a really expensive ovulation kit that I thought was expensive, like hundred bucks or something on Amazon. And that I think was a little bit more accurate, but we were having sex when I thought that I was ovulating and I wasn't getting pregnant for a couple months and I am very impatient. So I quickly went to the OBGYN who said, you need to have been trying for like six months or a year before I start testing you, but I will do some blood work, but your husband needs to go get a semen analysis. I was like, what is is that and why? And um, ha, he'll never go, but okay. And obviously I'm the problem, right? Like oh, this yeah, is- that's another huge and that's misconception. What I, and that's what I thought, like it's gonna yeah. be me. She was like, your blood work's fine. They, we sent Brian to a urologist. He was like not happy about it. It was more f- annoying for him and he went. And we were out to dinner one night and the doctor called with the results and she said that Brian's sperm count was really low, like below normal and that there's these other- markers now known as motility and morphology. And now I know all these things and that, that they were like bad all around. Okay. That was devastating. And I didn't understand that because I didn't know anything about male factor infertility. And my husband is really into health and wellness. And I was like, how is this even possible? What does this even mean? And that was like sort of it. So she was like, you need to go to a fertility clinic. So this was all like a rush, like an ocean, like hitting me a wave. And I didn't know how to process it. And I was really upset. And I spiral quickly. Mm -hmm. So very quickly, like that next day, I was like crying and Googling around for fertility clinics. And I was like calling and crying to these receptionists who were like, what? (laughs) And I'm like begging to get an appointment. They're like, well, we're booked up for X amount of time. And of course, like I'm picking like the ones that are the most well-known and doctors that I'm finding on Google and trying to like get with like the best one. And we got in to see a doctor like that same day or the next day, some woman just felt sorry for us. And she got us an appointment and he was like, no, it's okay. You're probably going to be able to get pregnant. And that was totally wrong. And so we just went down this path that lasted for two years. And you were in your 20s. I mean, I, I think- I was 29. Yeah. I think that I was just a couple years older than that. But I think that also smashes what infertility looks like because you know, as well as I do, morning shows. I mean, it's always like the older white 
career woman who waited too long to have kids. And there aren't enough stories. Of course, fertility declines in women over 35. We know that. But men are part of the equation. People under 35 are part of the equation. And it's like left out too often of the storytelling. Once you started sharing even with friends or family, did you hear any stories back? Or at that time, were you truly feeling alone in it? Well, we didn't tell anybody. We didn't tell my husband's family. And we only told my mom. And I might have told one friend but we didn't tell anybody anything because we were ashamed and we didn't know anybody who'd ever had any problems. I had heard of people miscarrying, but I had never thought that it would this, I thought it was the scarlet letter. Oh my so gosh. I would never, never thought to share. And what was really frustrating is that this doctor who will remain nameless, but I can't stand him. It's like fancy fertility clinic in the city in Midtown. So yeah. I'll say. And he said, okay, well, you can just come in every month and we'll take your blood on like different times in my period. And we'll tell you exactly when you're ovulating and you'll go home and you'll have unprotected sex. Right. So we were continuing to have timed sex because we thought maybe I was missing my ovulation window and I would like lay there with my legs in the air. And it got to the point where we were no romance. I mean, it was just like having sex like clockwork and it was awkward and neither of us were in the mood. Fights. It's a chore at that point because you, you're doing and you're it like, literally as work. you're like, I have to do work. it today. And you're yeah. like, but I have a meeting or I can't oh, do it today God. now. And it's like, you can't wait. We're not going to wait another month. You know, we have to do it right now. And I remember one particular day that my husband came home late and, and like he wasn't into it. And like we were frustrated and I threw all the ovulation sticks up in the air. And slam the bathroom door. We've all been there. <laughs> yeah. It sucked. It was awful. So, you know, Samantha Bush was on our podcast. She's married. I don't oh, know. Oh, I you know her. You know her. Of course, of course I do. you know her. We well, all I don't know like each other. Personally, know her, but I, right. I have her book. And yeah. I think what she's done is amazing, especially she's great. with her charity. She's, she's been a podcast guest here a couple times, but she speaks so candidly about these moments just screaming at Kyle, like, <laughs> you know, just, or like, you don't, you must not want that. I mean, you end up saying and feeling. Whether or not you're literally on hormones, which is a whole other level where you can feel crazy, the emotional stakes are so high. And that is such a killer for romance. I mean, that's obvious, right? But well, yeah, and we didn't even test Brian's sperm again, I don't think, in that time period. And they were essentially obviously trying to get both my ovaries to ovulate. And that's when we started doing IUI. And at this point, I had done a lot of Googling and read a lot of like chat rooms and message boards because I, I never came across websites that told me anything. I swear, like six years ago, there wasn't very much. Well, we launched six years ago. Okay. So we were the first... We were the first website dedicated to this. So it was probably just before that that you I were Googling. I was reading message boards from people overseas <laughs> if at like crazy. 2 a.m. And they were, you know what I'm talking about? Those message boards and they're from like 2001 and all of and them. And they're wishing you baby dust. And, and all yeah. of them say the same thing that say like, I had this many eggs retrieved. And they were like almost like math equations. This many were, I was like, oh my God, like what's going on? So we do these IUIs. And at this point, I knew what the normal amount was for sperm. Like I knew what the threshold was and I was asking questions now, like, well, what is his sperm count post-wash? Mm -hmm. And when they told me, I'm like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Like, why are we doing the IUI? Like, this is not going to work. And they're like, well, it only takes one. I'm like, you're telling me he has less than a million post-wash sperm. 
and you're still going to do an IUI on me today? Not that I wanted to do IBF. I was really upset. So we did a couple rounds of IUI and then I freaked out. I hit my breaking point. And now our mid-roll break with today's episode sponsor to address some of the medical themes Chloe spoke about. And then we'll get back to Chloe's story on how she took her next steps to try to conceive. I'd like to welcome Dr. Janelle Luke from Generation Next Fertility in New York City. Generation Next Fertility supported this episode. And what we really appreciate about them is their patient-centered approach, the innovation they bring to the category, and the fact that they accept a lot of patients who've traditionally been turned away from other centers. Dr. Luke, welcome to the Pregnancy Podcast. Tell me about that. What does that mean? Because I know that's true, that you take patients that some other places don't accept. Andrea, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me here again in so many ways at Pregnantish because I remember we met a couple of years ago and here we are. And I'm very excited to tell you that Generation X is trying to redefine fertility care for the next generation of women by thinking differently and by fighting the status quo. And I remember we had this talk, Dr. Luke, a patient with FSH so high, AMH so low, how other places may have even offered donor eggs. Why did you fight for these women? Because it is worth the fight. They can get pregnant and we have done it. Now, may not through the conventional way where they may get 15 eggs. I always tell my patient, are you the, are you the typical patient that get 10, 15 eggs? three to four, five embryos. No, please don't keep on thinking you're a failure. Your body is just very different. And yes, the initial ovarian reserve has always been my passion because this group of women, ovaries do respond very differently to medications. And it is very important to have a different approach to these patients. So the cycles are more leaning towards natural, less medication. I always tell jokingly say I'm the ovary whisperer. And to understand each cycle has a different response. So the medications also will have a different dosage. And the protocol would drastically different depending each month, each cycle. And it is a little bit hard sometimes because it may not be one cycle to baby. It's true that certain women have to be at more, a couple more cycles to have a baby to the good embryo, depending on the age, depending on the equality and the journey that the patient came from. The longer the journey they had struggled with, it is the harder the game. It is the harder to and get the good And because it's name. a hard game, and, and that's why, obviously, some places are very concerned with their SART score or success rates. But to your point, not everyone with diminished ovarian reserve or these levels that look at first very discouraging, not all hope is lost. And so I really appreciate that you believe in them and that you work with this population. What is DOR? Because our guest today on the podcast, Chloe, actually was diagnosed very young with low ovarian reserve. Low ovarian reserve can be defined as under the age of 40 years of age with high elevated FSH higher than 10, sometimes 15, and there's a range. So number does not define you. So I, for the, all the audience, it is hard to say you have diminished ovarian reserve until you have a antral follicle count, which is also the way to count follicles on day three of your cycle, and then also defined by AMH value. 
So you need all these three with a history. So if a patient at 43 with all these low numbers, they don't really have diminished ovarian reserve. They just, yes, they have diminished, but they don't really have a disease. They are just getting older. And most patients who are 42, 43, 44 has less eggs. You don't have as many eggs as before. But if you are having the same numbers at that age, but now those numbers are presenting in your 20s, already 30s, then that diagnosis will start to creep into your medical chart saying you have diminished ovarian reserve. So my patients even more extreme is premature ovary failure, where the cycles start to get a little bit irregular as the age progresses in the young 30s. That is like patients start to worry, are they going through perimenopausal? But then it is interesting, even you're going through that at this young age, you can still get pregnant. But obviously, it is a very hard on some of our patients because they just finish, you know, medical school maybe or law, you know, they just start finish college and then they got married. They in the young thirty they stopped their pill and they discovered this. So that's why I always encourage you through pregnantish and many other social media, please you don't need to do anything. Just check your AMH. Be um, informed be about informed. your body yes. 100%. And it's a different era now with social media. That's the beauty of social. Because I think 20 years ago, even, there wasn't as much talk about all of this. And it shouldn't be a mystery. It's our own bodies. Chloe's husband faced some male factor infertility. So how do you make that diagnosis? How do you arrive at that? Male factor is really, guys are very interesting in terms of about semen analysis, in terms of do you have enough quantity? I always equate guys' sperm as in uterus is a castle, and if the egg is the queen, you need at least about 50 million per ml of sperm to swim. So now there's also motility factor and parameter as well as a morphology, which is the shape, the head of sperm motility is the movement of the sperm. The most important the parameter, if you look at like count, motility, and morphology, the most important actually is count in a semen analysis. And majority of time we just kind of talk about male fertility or not is really from the semen analysis. And it is also very important to understand that even the morphology is not as perfect or some of the parameters are, is not that perfect, they can still get their wife pregnant. It's still a very fertile sample. I, I've lost a patient. Oh my God, my husband cannot get me pregnant. My morphology is only 1%. I said, no, he has 200 million sperm. I think it's pretty good, you know. So some of the misconception is very important to understand male factor. And male factor can also be like incomplete ejaculation. It'll certain very intimate questions we have to ask our couples, but it may not be just semen analysis alone. Yeah, and I think it's so important to just illuminate all of these things, people under 35 with issues, men, just people traditionally left out of what I think the media often thinks who is accessing IVF. And you must see in New York City, you're in the center of it all. You serve a very diverse audience, right? And you see everything. Absolutely. And, you know, we, a Generation X would love to give back in terms of empowerment education. So we did have free AMH testing at our office a month ago, and we want to basically put it out there. We're not forcing anyone to make appointments. It's just all awareness. Once you check at AMH, you feel free to come in back in to get a follow-up. If you have insurance, just use your insurance or go to your OBGYN. Like I've called back some AMH values or I'm like, go back to OBGYN just to count and have a more complete picture because a number does not define you. But at least now you're educated, you're informed, you're going through that inquisitive pathway. And I think it's very important for patients to know. Absolutely. You have so much passion, which I love for this field. What brought you to this field? It is really my passion with women's health. 
I was born in Hong Kong. My mom is from a Chinese family, but she was given away because she was a little girl. So women's health has always been something I want to fight for. And because of the trauma she'd gone through, she was never happy being a woman. I still remember when I was a little girl, it's like always, it's not fun, Janelle, having a baby or, you know, going through this. So I got into biology and science. And yes, I'm very competitive since I was a little girl and love science and went into, you know, research endometriosis, research in diminished ovarian reserve. I found that actually the beauty of women's body and we produce life. What else can be more beautiful than an entity that can produce a human life? That's why I really want to dedicate myself into this field. And I think the fact that I feel like, you know, I immigrated to this country when I was 12 years old uh, and, and I went back and my parents kind of went back from Hong Kong, America in high school. So I able to get a outside view of unconventional way, you know, just able to look at things from an outsider. And I feel that kind of quality make me more passionate of doing fertility care in a different way. Like I would just mention about what, yes, we do about less medications, but what else? Our retrieval is less traumatic because we do local anesthesia and we use a smaller needle for the egg retrieval. So patient does not need to go through IV sedation because it's really hard for a patient to go through three cycles, four cycles, five cycles. So how do you make that experience to become a little bit better for this patient because it become part of their life. They're coming to work, they get, <laughs> so my patient get, oh, I'm goodbye, Dr. Luke, I'm going back to work again. Our days of blood draw, those are the really Hopefully, I can make it better in this coming years. And innovative idea on how to better our patient experience is also something that I really, really believe in and hope to improve. Absolutely. I love that. It's funny, I, the pun labor intensive comes to mind when I think of IVF. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah. the mild side of that, that you guys practice at Generation X Fertility, I very much believe in for some people, not for everybody, but you customize treatment, right? And then you offer options based on someone's profile, I guess. Yes. And diminished ovarian reserve is exactly those patients where you can use a different way, think differently and fighting the death status quo. And we strive for that. And now we have other things. We have luteal phase stimulation. And this is a new thing, Astrid Andrea. I used to do luteal phase and always have done. That's not new in terms of that. But the way we're doing it is now a little bit different from when we even met five, four years ago on certain patients because I was much more restrictive on certain patients. But I have a new member, Dr. Jesse Hay, who joined us and he's a, a great colleague of mine. He was actually a director when I was working with him five, six years ago. And he came back from a very traditional center in Boston and he joined us and he saw luteal phase. What we did, he said, wow, Janelle, let's do it on some of this patient. And finally, he now getting even better results because he modified the protocol with a little bit higher medication or different kind of medication. And so these are the exciting things that we can do because when you see women with diminished ovarian reserve, they may not be diminished as in they only have those eggs in the ovary. They maybe have only those eggs that are ready to be stimulated at that moment for that cycle. However, if you wait after this moment, meaning it's the typical time we stimulate, they may have a new group of follicles that are ready to be stimulated 14 days after the first group. I know that was so interesting to me when I was speaking with Destiny from Generation X Fertility about it, because the idea that we could have another shot 
at a retrieval right. in the same month yes is fascinating i don't think most people know that's even possible you have to pick right though not everyone can do that and not every patient's again the ovaries is like fascinating organ it's not every month not every cycle is you know, Janelle's ovaries in July doesn't mean the same yeah, in August, yeah, yeah. September. So you have to catch it at the right time. And that is hard sometimes to do randomized control trial. But we are submitting some research and review retrospective analysis. Excellent. Um, on this. Yeah, on this. Because the thing is, do you create outcome? So now we know we get more eggs, but do you get more normal embryos, i.e. furthermore is life birth? But those are just new windows that we are trying to find out. And But it is difficult because ovaries are so... They, they are very dynamic organism. And so it is very hard to standardize the, the study. And every woman is different. Not everyone is susceptible for luteal phase. Like, oh my God, I just had eight retrieval. What the heck? I'm doing another one. Uh, at the same time, patients like, oh my God, what was this? I'd love to get three more eggs. <laughs> right, right, right. right. And so everyone's so different. Well, everyone's so different, but that's, I think, a key to your success as well, that you know that and that it's not one size fits all. So this is part of National Infertility Awareness Week. Our campaign at Pregnantish is called Infertility Looks Like. We've popularized this hashtag, which just a few years ago when we started it, about 70 people had used it. Now it's in the thousands. So we're really trying to show a new face of infertility. You know it better than anyone. So what do you want people listening to know about infertility that they may not think about? I think that one of the most important message for people who are listening is that infertility can be a very lonely disease. I think lots of women, including myself, I oh, am I good enough? What was going? What did I do? Not good enough. That kind of question is hard. It's so hard when every woman, every patient who comes to me is doing the best they can. And am I good enough? Question. I, I don't want to be more gender. Maybe it's men too. But I felt like lots of the females have those questions in in school, in being a doctor, in being a patient. And obviously, majority of my female patients. And I want them to know that, yes, you're doing everything you can for fertility. And when you eat healthy, I know some patients are like, am I doing something not enough or vitamins? Once they ask that question, I want to say, oh, yes, you can take this vitamin. But then I also reinforcing the thought that you're not good enough. You need to do this to make yourself good enough to get to the right egg. And I want to break that thinking and I think that is one of the things that we do at my practice is try to tell them you're doing great. And some of the things can be controlled. Some of the things cannot be controlled. And you are not alone. And we, I don't know if this comes in other fertility practice, but we also have a support group for patients. It's headed by Destiny that we meet once a month to help patients speak out some of these thoughts and thinking to meet their needs is absolutely important. So important. Well, thank you, Dr. Janelle Luke. I mean, I know that anyone coming to Generation X Fertility in New York City will feel the care that you speak about. And it's a wonderful thing. And for our audience to learn more, definitely go to generationnextfertility.com. And now back to Chloe on reaching her breaking point as she was about to start IVF with low ovarian reserve and her husband's male factor infertility. I had just started working at CNN and I was Googling around one morning and I was in the middle of medicine and about to do another IUI that week. And I Googled around and I saw that Savannah from the Today Show had allegedly gone to Weill Cornell Center for Reproductive Medicine and I called them up. 
And I said, I want to make an appointment. They're like, well, which doctor do you want to see? You have to pick a doctor. I'm like, well, anyone that takes my insurance. Because some of the other places, they didn't take my insurance. And at this point, I was like, well, I'm not paying out of pocket. And luckily, now I come to find out, not everybody has fertility coverage. Hello. Right. And so I wasn't even aware of how lucky I was. I just assumed that if you worked and you had health insurance, that you're going to have fertility coverage. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, yes. How awful is that? That's a whole other conversation. Yes. And so I said, okay, I'll pick this guy. And I went in and I met with him and he did an ultrasound. He's like, wow, like you have a lot of follicles. I would not go through with this IUI at the other clinic because you could have twins or triplets. Not that that would be a bad thing. And he was just like, I just don't recommend it. I think that actually like this is just reckless. And I said, okay. I won't do it. He's like, but we need to have your husband do another semen analysis and we need to do your blood work and some genetic testing. So we do the genetic testing and all is fine. Thank God. My blood work, fine. Brian's semen analysis, bad, the same. So he calls me. He's like, the bad news is X, Y, and Z. The good news is you should do IVF. And I said, well, when can we start? He was like, immediately. So the following week, I was already like prepping myself, which I didn't realize how much prep because like how many tests in the balloon thing? Oh my God. If y'all don't know the balloon thing, well, <laughs> it's just, a lot. Or where they spray the dye in your tubes. Oh it was the gosh. most painful experience, it's, by know. the way. Yeah, the HSG. I know. But it was on the phone call that he said, by the way, though, do you know that you have low ovarian reserve? I'm like, great. I'm like, what does that even mean? He's like, you just don't have... You don't have a lot of eggs. Like you're born with X amount of eggs. Everybody's born with different amount. And each month when you have your period, you lose eggs. I'm like, thank you. I don't remember any of this from biology. I appreciate this quick up to speed class you're teaching me. And he then says to me, like, you know, you might go into early menopause. I'm like, well, my mom went into early menopause. And so did my grandma. Ugh. And then light bulbs start. Going off, right? He's never said that that was why I couldn't get pregnant. It just means that I have a short window. That's what he was telling me. I could be wrong and someone could be out there listening saying like, no, no, it also affects your ability to get pregnant. But as far as I know, because I got things wrong just because I've been through this, (laughs) is that my low ovarian egg reserve was just an indicator that, all right, if you want to have a baby, you need to get moving. You're going to be 30 And you have low ovarian egg reserves. So like, especially if you want more than one child, you need to start now. So that kind of like pushed us to go ahead and start. In your lowest moment of like just hearing all this, feeling, learning about IVF, learning about brains. Oh, yeah, it was awful. um, Everything, just everything Well, because this was like a crescendo. So like this was like, you could hear it on the piano. Like we're just inching closer. There was no break. There was no positive thing. This is like a downward hill situation here at this point. So now I'm at rock bottom because the idea of doing IVF to me, I've said it a million times. I'll say it again, a death sentence. I mean, oh my God, I did not want to do IVF. I thought that sounded awful. I was like, are you kidding me? Why me? I was so bitter. I was so resentful. I was hated the world. I hated every pregnant person I saw on the street. I hated all my friends that were pregnant. I was so low. Hated my husband, even though you're like, why? But I don't know why. I just was in such a dark place. I was on all this medication. And now I got to go back for more blood work. 
and testing and wake up in the morning before work and I'm like hiding it and I have a new job and I'm in there every single morning, you know. And you're on air. I mean, I wasn't on air as much at that point, but it was still like, I don't want to tell my bosses that I'm going through a fertility journey. Now I have sort of like a different opinion on it. Well, it was also a different era. And I think there's a lot more education going into like my male boss's office and being like, hi, uh, so uh, I need to do monitoring for IVF. And (laughs) well, I have a funny story on that note. I was doing a media tour for whatever it was at that time, one of my book tours. And I kept going to the studio with Band-Aid from blood work and monitoring. And one day the producer said to me, Andrea, come here. And she said, are you going through fertility treatment? And I was like, oh shit, like what's coming out of my bag? What is she? And she pointed to my Band-Aid and she said, I know that Band-Aid. You're wearing it every time I see you these last weeks. Like, I think you've had a lot of blood draws. What'd you say? I said, yeah. And I started to tear up. Well, it was also, it was both uncomfortable and liberating because Um, she had been through it and she like gave me a hug and said, I get, I've worn that Band-Aid. I just had never looked at that as an accessory or as a, a way to expose myself. But I think, you know, these things are just a part of the world that we have to live in while we're undergoing, excuse the pun, a very labor intensive process. What do you wish you told yourself at that time in your lowest moment? So hard to say. I mean, look, it's cheesy, but like, it's going to be okay. It's going to get better because I really had a sky is falling mentality. I was in a real funk. I mean, I assume it was depression, all of that. It was was in such a bad place mentally. And the medicine was not helping all of the hormonal imbalances or things that I was on and doing the blood work and the stress and keeping it a secret. And then there was a financial part of it, even though insurance covered most of it, just a lot, you know? And so after all the testing and we start the process, you know, you take the class on how to do the medicine. And then, you know, I hired a nurse, which was an uh, out-of-pocket expense because I wasn't confident that I could handle such expensive medicine and not screw it all up. Because you can't just call up CBS and be like, oh, I screwed it all up with the Menopure. Can you send me more? <laughs> right. They're like, that'll be five grand. Right. And so then we did IVF. But when they did the retrieval, I didn't get a ton of eggs because of the low ovarian reserve. And there weren't that many that were mature. And due to his sperm issue, we had to do something called ICSI, Mm -hmm. which still a lot of people don't know when I mention that, who have fertility problems. And maybe they just don't know what it's called. Mm -hmm. It's cool if you watch it on YouTube. They take like the best looking sperm with like a, I don't know, a needle or something. And they like extract it out of the sperm. And then they actually inject it into the egg. So it has a higher fertilization rate instead of what they do, in case you're wondering, in like a Petri dish, they put your egg and then they put sperm around it and they just like let nature do its thing. Yeah, So it's like a little bit like more of a forced thing, but it gives it a higher rate. And so, yes, I got pregnant after one round of IVF. Okay. So that's amazing, right? So great. I get that I'm lucky in that respect when you hear- All relative. When you hear about people (laughs) who have, you know, can never get pregnant from it or do it a dozen times or whatnot, or have miscarriages or all the things that you can go through. But on the flip side of that, I know a lot of people that have done many, many rounds, but they have a bunch of embryos banked and they were able to do genetic testing or they can use it for a surrogate or they can think about it and come back to it later. For me, on day three, after everything was fertilized, they told me, okay, you have this many embryos that look good, this many that don't, 
we suggest doing a fresh day three transfer because we think in our practice, everybody has a different opinion that has a higher chance of sticking implantation. So they put the embryo in and it stuck. We found out obviously Mm -hmm. that long two-week wait, right? The worst. And then the other ones never made it to freeze. They never explained to me in either of my rounds of IVF for both my kids. And IVF worked on the first time for both, which I know, but I never had any embryos to freeze. So I always always had people be like, well, would you ever want a third? You know, don't you have embryos? I'm like, no. And they're like, oh, wait, you didn't test yours or you didn't, you know, oh, I have 30. And you know, we have girls and boys. And I'm like, no, no, like we never. You just had to go straight fresh That's to the, the third. most interesting part of my story yeah. is that so many people who've been through this, like they can't process me explaining to them that like not all embryos make it to day five and you can't freeze them all. So it's, and you can't genetically test in that case. No, you have to wait till day five. Then they send them off. This is in the weeds, guys. But then they yeah. send <laughs> it off. This audience understands. They send it off and yeah. to freeze and then yeah. they can test. But then it ha- that has its own challenges when the dethawing process and Putting it well, depending in. on the lab too. I mean, there there's so many variables. But and, I don't regret you know, doing day three. Yeah. And I love that I have my two boys, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Listen, I've had that moment too where I look at another story and I feel lucky because I have my four-year-old now. But what's really lucky would have been to have sex, have a fun wild night and then get two lines on a pregnancy test. Sure, I know. That's what's really lucky. But what what is truly, in all seriousness, the community that it's brought us to, the advocacy that we've been able to embrace out of this tough experience. I know something you advocate for, I advocate for, is access to care. Why is that important to you? Well, along the way, I learned about National Infertility Awareness Week. I didn't really start wrapping my head around any of these platforms and anybody in the quote community until after I announced my second pregnancy and that we had had problems. And that's when the community came to me. That's when people started reaching out to me for podcasts. Some outlets wrote about our story and I didn't realize that we were special in sharing what we went through. I just thought I was going to share it on Facebook and social media, and that was it. And I didn't have some massive following. And then we also learned that Brian's sharing his story was very powerful. Next thing you know, we found ourselves on TV and talking about it. And over the years and getting involved with Resolve, which everybody should check out, the National Infertility Organization. And they like shockingly awarded me with their Hope Award for Advocacy. And at that point, I, I mean, I was only just talking about it, but I was talking about it a lot. And that in itself they considered advocacy. But then I thought, well, how can I use my platform at CNN to try to shine a light on it? So I looked at National Infertility Awareness Week and I said, what can I do around that? And a few years ago, I did a story about, I don't remember what led me to it, but I, I was, I sort of accidentally fell into the statistics and the facts that there is not equitable access to the medication into the coverage and how most people due to how expensive it is, can't even do it. So that to me was outrageous. And that to me was just crazy that these healthcare companies weren't even offering it. These like fertility deserts in the country and all of these communities that don't even like have access to any of it or even the education of it. So yeah, I did this great piece and it was like number one on CNN. Because people care. Yeah, people, and I people think that care even my work was surprised at yeah. the time a few years ago that it was doing so well. I'm like, I'm telling you. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is, a, be, this is big. <laughs> the reason we launched Pregnantish is because I would tell producers all the time, we have to tell the story. I'm writing relationship books. This is a relationship chapter when sex does not make baby. 
it is a doozy on all relationships, romance, work, community, friends, family, our own selves and bodies. And I was told all the time by TV networks that that's either depressing, that's very niche. Like, this is not niche. Like, you've just told me you've been through it. (laughs) You know, there's not. But I think it does trend in media because it's not niche. So many people know someone or who have been through it themselves. Well, now that celebrities are sharing about it, you know, Kim sharing that she sharing on keeping up with the Kardashians, right? Or that she had a surrogate or Khloe Kardashian using a surrogate or Chrissy Teigen talking about what she's been through is really important. And some might say, well, like, oh, well, they're rich or, oh, they're famous. But no, they don't have to share just because they're in the public eye. There are several celebrities who are very famous, who went through fertility journeys, who don't share. Absolutely, Sarah Jessica Parker, who I love, but I'd like to see her share more. Nicole Kidman, another amazing actress who I think is spectacular. Michelle Obama. She doesn't really share. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Michelle did talk about it in her memoir. Right. She did much, much later. And I credit her for that. But I do agree with you. But there are celebrities, though, that like I think should talk about it. But I've been given feedback from certain celebrities, teams that like, well, they have they're, they're focused on other causes. I mean, you can't force somebody to want to talk about something. And they came along at different times, too, if you think about it, like Nicole Kidman and Sarah Jessica Parker, they're great, but they also had kids like 20 something years ago. So maybe there's still of that mindset that like, this is like just too personal to share, right? Or what's the point of me sharing now? So much has changed since I first had kids, right? So oh, maybe that, that might be it. I, I can't assume, but maybe that's just But you interview so many celebrities in your job as an entertainment reporter that I'm sure, yeah, you must... Yeah, there are just so many Things stories come we'll up never in conversations, know, right? right? Oh, I've had conversations yeah. with celebrities about this stuff who haven't talked about it off the record. And I've cried to them or I was going through IVF while interviewing different celebrities. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, look, you can't force somebody to share it. Also, if you had come to me in my first pregnancy and told me to share it, I would have been like, F off. Are you kidding me? You're crazy. (laughs) I hear you on that. So what else do you want to add? I'm so like inspired by everything you've shared because the male factor infertility part to me is, oh my gosh, still a topic that we need to be talking about. I would love for some like macho guy in Hollywood to come out and talk about fertility struggles from a male perspective, but not that, oh, my wife can't get pregnant, but that like, I can't get my wife pregnant or my partner pregnant. That would be powerful. That would be so powerful. I'd love to see that. I, you know, during this National Infertility Awareness Week series, we have a few stories of male factor and we can never have too many because there's not enough, right? So... Thank you for being on the Pregnish Podcast. I can't wait to just talk to you more offline as well. And where can people find you in your book and everything oh, to follow so your journey? Sweet. No, and what it's you, for what sure. you do is so important and so powerful and so impactful. You are so special and you are changing oh. lives. I just think you're such a treasure to this community and to everyone. You are tireless. I don't know when you sleep. People can just find me on Instagram. And in my bio on Instagram, like right at the top, there's a link of where to check out my grandfather's book, Luck of the Draw, that might inspire you. And you can always DM me. I mean, unless you don't want to, but like if you want to DM me a question or you want me to give you a call, 
I can give you a call and then I can also share my email with you, right? And we can just chat. And I do that with a lot of different people. So definitely if anybody has a question or wants to ask me more, I don't get that many messages. So I will see it. I love it, (laughs) Chloe. Oh my, that's so generous. Thank you for being, (laughs) thank you for being on the Pregnant Podcast. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to another inspiring episode of Pregnanish, where we tell the story of the incredible lengths that newsmakers and thought leaders go to create their families. Until next time.